You're listening to Science at the Local podcast. My name's Hamish Clark. And I'm Kevin Joseph. And this is our second real episode. Uh, in our first one, we spoke to David Blair. This week, or this episode, we're talking to Dr. Renee Heller. Uh, he is an astrophysicist at the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research in Göttingen, Germany. And his special interest is in planets and moons outside of our own solar system. Uh, exoplanets, exomoons. And if you came to our first event uh, uh, at the Springwood Bolo this year, you would have heard Rob Wittenmeyer talk about exoplanets. This is a nice little uh, complimentary view, if you like. Uh, what did you think of it, uh, Kevin? Uh, another excellent talk. Um, pretty exciting, again, to be talking to another scientist who is almost in his element in this, in this period of time. Um, I did think it was amazing to think of um, exo, an exoplanet community and an exomoon community somehow living side by side harmoniously. That's right. I mean, I didn't didn't even occur to me that there'd be exomoon hunters. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. But uh, you know, he's one, and I mean, it's a pretty pretty tricky <laughs> tricky task by the sounds of it. Uh, it's hard enough finding exoplanets, but you know they've, they've got it all mapped out. They kind of know exactly what they're looking for. They just need to look in the right places and get enough kind of equipment time to to do it. Um, there's a point in in your interview with um, with Renee Heller that uh, uh, for the listener, I think you should absolutely follow up on is that that idea of not just looking at the sky and saying, all right, where can we find um, you know planets and moons, but Almost looking at it from their perspective, what they see in terms of the Earth's transit. Um, I thought that was a really uh, a unique kind of a really interesting um, when he mentioned that when he talked about that. Yeah, that was a really nice little insight there, and he's uh, yeah, he's, he's he's written a paper with some people about that, and uh, yeah, listen in for that as Kevin says because it's pretty cool. I've also got some links up on our website, uh, Renee's homepage. Uh, there's a cool nature article on the search, looking for the aliens that are looking for Earth. Um, and uh, also the project that he's involved in, HEK, H-E-K, The Hunt for Exomoons with Kepler. Kepler is the name of, uh, uh, well, I should know this, a satellite maybe, a spaceship, uh, some, something out there in space. So uh, please enjoy the interview. Enjoy. Maybe we could start off by um, you telling me a little bit about uh, where you are and what you do. I'm right now sitting in Göttingen at the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research. In German, it's even more, more difficult. <laughs> German, it's Max Planck Institute for Sonnensystemforschung. Sounds like one big chunk. Yes, they like chunking their uh, words. Exactly. And I just joined the MPS for short two months ago. Actually, before that, I've been in Canada for two years, where I was postdoc at McMaster University in Hamilton, which is Ontario, so Toronto. And um, I've been working for the past maybe eight years or so, uh, that is including my, the time of my PhD thesis on extrasolar planets. And I'm particularly interested in moons around extrasolar planets, that is, exoplanets, none of which has been discovered uh, as we speak. So you could be the first. Um, well, others could be first too. That's the interesting thing about it. Sometimes I've got the impression that now 
in 2016, we are in a similar stage uh, of exomoon science as the exoplanet community, which was very small back then, was maybe in the mid or late 80s, <clears throat> when technology has had just, um, uh, just been mature enough to detect exoplanets, but there have been a couple of uh, spurious detections back then and also today, none of which uh, has been uh, confirmed back then or nowadays. And I think we're just at the cusp of being able to find exomoons. Could happen any day now or maybe within the next 10 years, no one knows. Yeah, it's pretty uh, exciting, I guess. Yeah, uh, and I'm also interested in the possibility of life beyond Earth, be it bacteria or even intelligent life. So that's the two or three, two and a half research areas I'm focusing on. So I'll put you on the spot then. Uh, if you had to, to pick whether there's life elsewhere, would you say yes or no? I'd like to answer in a probabilist, probabilistic manner. That is Spoken like a true scientist. Yeah, I would say it is very likely that there are other planets that are also inhabited, where inhabited is or includes any kind of life. Uh, I guess there could be some point, uh, you know, down the track in 10 years or a few hundred years or whatever when uh, uh, we've discovered that life and it all seems obvious. But for now, it's, it's quite exciting because we're, we're needing to find out. We don't, we don't know all the answers. And it's actually a very, very particular um, phase in the evolution of man or mankind that we are now able, it's just like as if you are born as a human being, you come come to the you come to earth so to say and you're able to open your eyes and now you need to make sense of all of that's around you and we as humans over the last few hundred maybe thousand two thousand years are have just started to open our eyes we have now detected gravitational waves we've invented computers and now we need to make sense of all of this and it's so hard to predict what's happening in 10 hundreds or thousands of years, it's like being inside the body of a very young human being that is just one week old or so and try to imagine what's up in a year or in 10 years. It's completely beyond what we can even think of. That's what's the problem about it. Well, I've been thinking about that topic, uh, sorry, that, that topic myself because I've got a three-month-old baby right now. <laughs> I have a four four weeks old one. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> that's probably what's that's what's it. That's what makes us think about it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, I saw there was a paper that you put out recently uh, that had some publicity uh, that was talking about possible ways of detecting uh, other planets or planets that might have life, rather than just kind of a scattergun approach going everywhere. Maybe saying, well, why don't we look? in places where other people or other things might be likely to look at us. Would you be able to talk about that at all? Yep, sure. So uh, the essence of it, I mean, you, you, you just described it yourself. Um, there has, the SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence has been going on for maybe 50 to 100 years, depending on what you still would include. There's the famous Drake equation. For example, it comes from the early 60s but others have been trying to get in touch with Martians much earlier. It is as early as around 1900. But anyways, modern SETI has been 
performed or executed for maybe 50 or a few more years today. And as you say, as far as I understand, people have so far been using a scattered approach that is, let's try and look at the closest stars to the solar system. And of course, from an earthbound perspective, these stars and potential hosts to inhabited planets can be anywhere in the sky. They just need to be close. That is, few light years maybe uh, away from Earth. But from our perspective, they could be anywhere in the sky. Uh, others have tried to target um, stellar clusters because with one telescope pointing, you can cover a lot of stars, thousands or ten thousands of stars. But in terms of where they are in the sky, they also could be anywhere. It's just that you want to have a high probability to detect something because you have a lot of targets in one single observation. And in our new study, we try to assume the perspective of, an, of a distant observer of the solar system. That must have been fun. Yep, sure. And as soon as you do it, it's, a couple of things are very obvious. Uh, a couple of things become very obvious. And, uh, I mean, the paper, the idea itself is very cheap, actually. Just turned out no one has written the paper. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love a paper like that. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a very low-hanging fruit, if you want. It was an obvious paper to write. Because we, um, we take on, we, we assume the perspective of an observer of the solar system and we try to think of Earth as an exoplanet, so to say. And we find that you need to be in a certain location that is actually a very thin strip on the celestial hemisphere in order to be able to see the Earth transiting the Sun once a year, that is every 365 days or so. If you are, have a too high a latitude, so to say, um, you are not able to see the Earth transiting the Sun because if you would, say, um, have a perspective with a polar view on the solar system, then you would see how the Earth performs almost a perfect circular circle within here. But you need to be very close to the Earth's orbital plane around the Sun that is the, the ecliptic in order to see the Earth transiting the Sun once a year. And it turns out that the area the total area of this very thin strip in the sky is about uh, a two a thousandth. Oh, that's a tongue breaker. It's two thousandth. It's one part of two thousand of the total um, of the total area of the celestial plane. So, in this sense, we restrict SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, to a, a, a small fraction of the area. That can be served. Which is great, that's helpful. Yeah, it makes things efficient. Maybe very German. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so do you know if there are any plans to, to kind of carry that out and, and start looking in those spots? Is it happening already? Um, I know of a few papers from the, well maybe from 10 or 15 years ago. These were only conference proceedings or unrefereed literature where people mentioned the idea of so-called ecliptic service and surveys. And I know that the ATA, Allen Telescope Array, has been used 
to um, look at the anti-solar direction of Earth that is uh, along the line connecting the sun and the Earth, but into an extrasolar uh, direction, so to say, that is into the direction of an observer who would right now, our time, see the Earth transiting the sun. I'm going to have to put some slides up for people listening to this so they can imagine the the way the planets and stars are spinning and moving past, but you're doing a great job describing it. <laughs> and people have been using the ATA for a few days, four days, I guess, to look for deliberate broadcasts to us, but detected nothing. So it's four days out of 365. So there is still a lot to be done. So can you talk a little bit about uh, extrasolar moons? Because uh, the talk we're having at our Science at the Local event is on planets, I think, and uh, it's kind of obvious when you stop and think about it, well, yeah, the planets have moons, but uh, we haven't heard much about that. So what are some of the similarities and differences and, and why the interest? Yeah, um, we start from a solar system perspective. We look around and see that we have eight planets, depending on what you still classify as a planet, uh, eight major bodies, so to say. Um, but we have dozens or hundreds of moons, again, depending on what you still classify as a moon, because nature doesn't care about classifications too much. It's, it's, there are blurry lines, so to say, between categories, in nature at least. But we, we see... Dozens of objects that orbit planets, let's say. That is, there are much more satellites than planets themselves. So it seems reasonable that moons may even outnumber planets, galaxies. So they should be there. With 2,000 exoplanets confirmed as of today, there might be thousands and ten thousands of moons around those exoplanets. But the tricky part is moons are typically much, much smaller than their hosts. And it's very hard to, to find planets, so it's even harder to find moons. That's why none of those exomoons has been discovered. Uh, okay. Um, I want to ask you how, how they might be discovered. But before I do, you said typically they're smaller. Uh, so does this mean you can get a moon that's bigger than the planet it's orbiting? It somewhat depends on how you define a moon, I guess. And usually a moon is defined as, if we consider a, a binary system of, say, a, to be neutral, a primary and a secondary, the primary being, being defined by its higher mass compared to the secondary, then the moon is classified as a moon compared to a planet, because it could be a binary planetary system as well. Then the secondary becomes a moon as soon as the center of gravity of this two-body system is within the radius of the primary. So it's a relationship definition. Mm. Yes, um, defined by the mass ratios, if you want to. In the Earth-Moon system, for example, that's the case. The um, very center, the center of mass, is a few thousand kilometers below our feet, so to say, well, depending on the position of the moon, but it, the center of mass never is exterior to the Earth's surface. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, sure, if you think of a binary planetary system, both have the same mass, then the center of mass would be in the middle of them, but not interior to the planet itself. So a moon can be very 
small in terms of mass, but be very large in terms of radius if it consists of air, let's say, which is very unreasonable. So in principle, you can think of a moon that is larger than its planet, but it's still a moon it depends on your definition. Okay, so uh, so what are the challenges then in uh, in identifying or discovering exomoons? So one thing is mass. Obviously, these things are very very tiny, and another thing would be radius. They are also tiny in terms of their sizes, not only in terms of their weight. Um, and uh, there are two detection strategies for exoplanets, if you want to, that have been very successful in the past. 20 years. One is the radial velocity method where planet hunters measure the radial velocity of a star with respect to Earth. So as a planet orbits the star and the planet cannot be seen, the star makes a wobble, an apparent wobble with respect to Earth. And it is possible for us to measure the radial component of this velocity, of this wobble of the star if you want to, not the tangential, just the radio. And from this wobble it's possible to measure the period, that is the length of the year of the planet and of the star, which is the same. And also sometimes it's possible to measure the mass of the planet in brief. Now the the challenge, because you are asking for the challenges in finding exomoons, the challenge in finding moons with this method is that you only can measure the mass of the companion. That is, in this case, the planet. Whether the planet has a moon or two moons or whether it's a binary planetary system or a giant cube or a chair, <laughs> you don't know. You just know the mass of this perturba, if you want to. So it's not possible to discern between a planet orbiting a star and causing this wobble, or a planet with moons causing the same wobble, then would be a lower mass planet with a couple of... Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but it's not possible to find moons with radial velocity. So what, what's, what's it going to take then to, to find, find out? Transits. <laughs> this would be the second method. So transits um, have been very, yeah, a very successful means to find exoplanets, in particular within the last seven years or so, um, after the launch of NASA's Kepler Space Telescope. The transit method makes use of the yearly, the annual occultation of a star by its planetary companion. So in terms of a geometrical perspective or probabilistic approach, if you want to, if you would take a star, a random star in the sky, and assume it has a planet, then you wouldn't know in the first place or from the very beginning how the orbit of this planet would be aligned with respect to our line of sight. Could be like that, it could be like that, could be like that. And um, depending on the distance of the planet to its star, there is a certain probability that the planet transits its star from our perspective once a year. And it turns out that roughly every 100th planet or exoplanet transits its host star um, over the course of its orbit. So the Kepler Space Telescope has 
observed 150,000 stars roughly for about four years. That is a given patch on the sky for four years and measured the brightnesses or measured the brightness of these 150,000 targets. And for 4,000 of them, say the order of 1,000, so that is 1,000 out of 100,000, roughly speaking, every 100th star, it has measured periodic eclipses or decreases in brightnesses, <clears throat> which are attributed to the transits of exoplanets. And so they discovered, as I said, a few thousand objects, that is planets or so-called planet candidates. So the transit method has been even more successful than the radio velocity method so far. Coming back to moons and the question how we can find moons with them. Now, the nice thing about transits is that they give us an idea of the actual physical shape of the object that go passes in front of the star. It doesn't give us a direct measure of the mass of the transiting object, but rather of its shape, say, or of its, in the f as a first rough guess, of its size. The deeper transits, right, the larger the planet compared to its star, at least. And if you have, to make it very cheap, if you have two transits, subsequent, two subsequent transits that differ Maybe that or one following the other by a few hours, it's very obvious that there are obviously two objects transiting in star. You can also have two objects, that is a big planet and a small moon, um, transiting the star at the same time, maybe at, le at least for a certain period. That is, the planet would transit the star first and then the moon would follow. So for a, a certain amount of time, maybe a few hours or so, you would actually have two objects transiting the star, and the transit would be anomalously deep, that is, deeper by a small fraction of a Because percent. of the moon. Exactly. And also, the planet itself, due to the presence of the moon, will have kind of a very curly orbit around the star, and its transits will not be perfectly periodic. So it sounds like you really know exactly what you're looking for. You're just waiting to see it. Exactly, exactly. So there are a couple of effects related to the transits of a planet in front of a star. And there are a couple of sub-methods if you want to. But transits are the means of detecting exomoons in the near future at least. I could talk for hours about it. <laughs> I can tell. Look, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, we will have to wind it up there because we're running out of time. But um, maybe before we go, uh, if anyone's interested in finding out more, are there any resources? Uh, do people need to dive into the literature or are there any good kind of popular science resources for people to find out more about the topic? Um, sure. One very simplistic approach would be to enter ExoMoon in your Google search field. There we go. On another thing, there is um, a, a prominent, actually a dedicated search for exomoons led by David Kipping. It's the so-called hunt for exomoons with Kepler. And ha they have their own um, website and also their own, I guess, a Facebook or Twitter account. I'm not sure. So to dive into the actual science that is currently being performed on exomoons, the hack internet uh, platforms would be an uh, intuitive approach, I would say. Fantastic. Well, we, we might be able to provide those resources for our listeners too. 
Look, thanks a lot for your time, Renee. All the best with your research, and uh, I look forward to uh, hearing about the discovery of the first exomoon. Or alien. <laughs> or both. <laughs> Thank you.